ho, ho, hello, and welcome aboard the festive giddy carousel of pop. This is the podcast that gives two thumbs aloft to an old issue of Smash It's, then applies an index finger and has a little flick through. We usually peruse an issue from the 1980s, but we may slip a year or two either side of that and we discuss what's on its pages, looking at who's riding high on the carousel and who's heading down the dreaded dumper. I'm Simon Galloway, and with me is gorgeous Gavin Hogg. Ooh, hello, Simon. <laughs> hello, pop kids everywhere. Upgraded your status there. Thank you. And we'll we'll be your hosts in this journey through the back issues of pop. And as ever, we have a guest on board the carousel to help us in our quest. And today we welcome journalist and author Patricia Kaliskan. Hello. So the issue that we'll be looking at is the pre-Christmas edition from the 6th to the 19th of December, 1984. A big, warm, cosy blanket of an issue. And if you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to a couple of amazing websites. Brian McCloskey's like Punk Never Happened and Michael Caine's Smash It's Remembered, which, to put it simply, are Smash It's archives with hundreds of editions of the mag scanned and uploaded in full. You'll find the link to this edition in the show notes and on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog. That rolls off the tongue nicely and that's not all you'll also find links to spotify and youtube playlists which round up pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this edition of the hits uh, we'll also be posting these links on twitter and facebook just search for the giddy carousel of pop or giddy pop pod on there um so before we get stuck in we need to transport ourselves back back to the december of 1984 and find out what each of us was up to I'm glad you've asked, I, I have no idea whatsoever. I could, no, I was in uh, year three of secondary school, year nine as it would be now. So I was 14 and unfortunately anyone that's listened to edition one of our glorious podcast will know that I kept a diary for some years of uh, my teenagehood. But uh, it starts in 1985 on the 1st of January. Oh. So if it had been a few weeks later, I could have told you exactly what I was up to. As it was, I don't really remember an awful lot. I mean, I was buying a lot of seven-inch singles, going into Birmingham most weekends or Sully Hull, mostly second-hand record shops or the news agents that sold, you know, the old jukebox things with the big holes in the middle. Buying smash hits every uh, fortnight, obviously. I used to have it saved at the uh, local news agents because I couldn't afford to have it delivered. And that was it, really, yeah. Just top of the pop, seven-inch singles and smash hits. That was my pop world. I can you remember what sort of music you were listening to. Yeah, so the, the music I'd have been listening to then, well, obviously the Smiths, uh, they were a, a huge love of my musical life. Still Adamant, you know, he was still hanging around in those days. I liked things that were quite boisey at that time, so I, I really dug The Alarm <laughs> and uh, Big Country and Echo and the Bunnymen and Simple Minds and U2. Those kind of quite... Quite Well, not macho bands, but, you know, bands that boys are more likely to like. I certainly wouldn't have caught myself listening to anything by Duran Duran or Spandar or the Thompson Twins or Kershaw, Stroke, Jones, any of that ilk. Patricia, what about you? Well, I was eight and 1984 is absolutely vivid as the music year. So I kind of discovered music in the summer um, by way of the charts, I was a radio kid. And then I realised that I could tape songs off the radio. And by the time we got to Christmas 1984, I was absolutely obsessed by Duran Duran. I got my Sanyo cassette player for Christmas with mini speakers. 
Sunday nights were for listening to the charts. Wouldn't miss even the first 30 seconds of that. And I got leather pants for Christmas. Whoa. Grey leather pants. Exactly like Duran Duran that I begged for. So I was, I literally remember having my Marks and Spencer oversized 80s coat on with my grey leather pants and my Walkman on. And my Sanyo had um, a grey leather carry case. And I was in the back of the car going to my auntie's for Christmas, literally thinking that I was Duran. <laughs> in your grey leather case. <laughs> <laughs> so I was an eight-year-old girl who wanted to be one of the boys. I didn't have any real female role models. I didn't want to be the girl in the video. I wanted to be the girl in the band. So, yeah, I had to look like Duran. And I actually thought I did. That's lovely. (laughs) And what about Smash It's Where was that in your life in uh, 1984? So I remember going to McCall's um, with my mum and my pocket money and literally just going, ooh, pop stars. Yeah, I like pop stars, so we'll read that. And then it became a ritual where I was spent every penny that I had and every moment that I had pretty much buying every magazine that was out there, completely unsuitable from junior school all the way through high school. So it was Smash Hits was always the real treat because I loved the humour of Smash Hits. And literally Smash Hits and reading Jane Goldman, who went on to marry Jonathan Ross um, in Just 17, I was like, this is what I want to do for a living. I want to be this silly. I couldn't believe that grown-ups were that silly and could just talk about pop music the way I did to my friends. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask a question, actually, Patricia. What was Duran Duran, what was the appeal of them? Was it the music? Was it the way they looked? Why them and not Spandar or another band or Culture Club or, you know? Do you know, it wasn't really the pin-up poppy thing. Hmm. It was more to do with being a bit of a kind of arts and crafts kid. And I really found, honestly, I really found uh, a soulmate in Nick Rhodes. Okay, yeah. um, I started investigating. I don't know how I did this without the internet. I can't remember. But I remember understanding things about photography and um, Helmut Newton and um, wanting to know more about bass players because of John Taylor and knowing about different types of basses and all these random facts. The whole kind of potpourri of Duran Duran Mm. appealed to me. Just the trinity of Simon and Nick and John in terms of, I mean, even I remember Tiger Tiger reading an interview with Simon in this fan club magazine and he spoke about T.S. Eliot. And the next thing I was reading, T.S. Eliot. So I literally went to the University of Duran Duran <laughs> from that moment. First class honours. <laughs> this was the age that I basically didn't leave my bedroom. I was constantly making compilation tapes of my records, whatever records were in the house, buying records off mates and, and um, other members of the family got back into taping stuff off the top 40 on a Sunday so like you Patricia um, I was in there you know my mum would be shouting me down for tea we always had um, Sunday dinner between you know around about six o'clock it's oh mum they're just on the top ten so leading up to Christmas I remember I bought my sister uh, a couple of this is when you could buy seven inch singles as Christmas presents And I'd bought my sister, who's uh, six years older than me, I bought uh, No More Lonely Nights by Paul McCartney and Caribbean Queen by uh, Billy Ocean. Went to the Asda with my mum 
and uh, looked at their singles count and picked those two out. So I'll get those two for our Barbara. <laughs> and um, Chris, Christmas Eve, wrapped them up, popped them under the tree, and uh, and she's like, oh, what are they? Are they mine? I'm like, yeah. Oh, you bought me records again? I'm like, no, no. And I got, got really upset. So, so I took them back. Good. And I thought, right, I'm going to disguise the present, even though she'd already seen the kind of wrapped seven-inch squares. I went off and I thought, right, I'm going to disguise these. And I started trying to construct out of uh, cardboard like a a seven-inch pyramid. (laughs) And I borrowed a Stanley knife off my dad. And this is where it all goes wrong, because I took the end of my left uh, index finger off pretty much. Not, Not completely, but right down to the nail. (laughs) <laughs> and blood was just kind of pumping out of it. <laughs> and ran to the bathroom, wrapped it in tissue, and had got this huge lump of skin just flapping off. Oh. And I was like, Mom, Mom, I've caught the enemy finger. Like in floods of tears, you know, snot flying everywhere and everything. You should so. have wrapped it up for Barbara. <laughs> How'd you like that, Barbara? Happy now? Yeah. Yeah, that's what happens when you're sassy, Barbara. You get sass for Christmas. Yeah. So, yeah, so I had to have this blooming big bandage on my finger. Oh, it was oh, so man. sore. It was so sore. <laughs> Band-Aid was very big that Christmas, so... So I think that's us in December 1984. So it's time to get stuck into our edition now. So it's not actually a Christmas edition that we're looking at. It's just before Christmas. And strawberry switchblade are on the front and they don't look particularly festive. But once you get inside, you'll find it's more festive than a, a festive chocolate Yule log. And, uh, and even more so when you check out the playlists that are on Spotify and YouTube, because you'll discover that everyone is gunning for Christmas. Not only have you got Last Christmas by Wham in there and Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Power of Love. You've got Band-Aid in there. So it was going to be a massive Christmas anyway, but then Band-Aid get in on the mix. And you start listening to other songs like Invisible by Alison Moye, Paul Young, Everything Must Change, the Bananarama song that's got lyrics in there, and the sleigh bells and church bells and choirs and, and all sorts of things going off all over these songs. So even if it's not a, a direct Christmas song, they're cramming the bits in there. And if the song's not anything to do with Christmas, then it's likely that the video will be. So absolutely every artist, it seems, is going for it. In fact, I think it's probably is for pop music, the biggest Christmas ever. And also, it's peak 80s. It's the absolute summit of 80s music and pop culture and uh, all that kind of thing. So I think it's it's an absolutely glorious um, edition of Smash Hits. So let's just get stuck into it, shall we? Let's do it. We have, as I've already mentioned, Strawberry Switchblade on the front looking just absolutely spectacular. They were like a pair of kind of Russian dolls to me, Strawberry Switchblade. They were of the Madonna ilk, and I remember watching their strange little dance, and by the end I had back comb hair, and had half a ton of neck curtain wrapped around my head. <laughs> so I do remember uh, since yesterday, very vividly. Um, so as well as uh, Strawberry Switchblade being on the cover, it also tells us that uh, Nick Kershaw, Culture Club, Wham, Frankie, Annie Lennox, Slade, Slade, Thompson Twins and Bananarama are in there. And the Band-Aid single, We Were There. On the back as well, 
It's Mr. David Bowie. Looking like, well, he looks like he's trapped in some sort of cage. I don't know if he's going to start one of his mime routines or something like that. And if you're looking at this, he's got on um, a shirt with, and I had this stuck on my wall, so I've been familiar with this photo for a very long time. He's got on a shirt that's kind of matches the grid of the fencing that he stood behind, but it's got these all these lines going on there. They, they, they're vertical lines, aren't they? Yes. Vertical is up. Yeah. Horizontal, remember the Zs for the sleep. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so we've just had a quick scan of Dave there on the back. We turn the uh, open the, the cover and uh, we see a photo of George Michael, Bob Geldof, Sting and Simon Le Bon during the recording of the Live Aid single. And what do you know? George Michael's wearing the exact same shirt, not even similar, <laughs> the exact same shirt. And listeners, I've only just noticed this. And it was quite a, a revelation when I saw that. So what's what's the story behind that, do you think, uh, Dave and George sharing the same shirt? Yeah, there's no coincidences there. That was off the bedroom floor that morning and it was worn by David in um, a very kind of sexy morning after way as he went into the kitchen offering George some muesli and got back in his cage waiting for George to return. <laughs> Obviously, that is what happened. It's, it's a trophy edition. It's, it's a little secret Christmas message from Bowie to Michael. I hope. I really do hope. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it does fit George better than it fits Dave um, because it's, it's looking looking quite baggy there on David. But you, you may have a point because you can't actually see uh, Dave wearing any trousers. Yeah. So, Well, yeah. It's the classic white shirt moment. I think you've, you've, you've got it absolutely nailed there. <laughs> Asked no. Yeah. Stop it. Don't get too excited, <laughs> Patricia. <laughs> Let's have a look at what I always refer to as the beating hearts of Smash It's, and that's bits at this point in time being written and edited by Neil Tennant, and it's just absolutely fabulous stuff. Would anybody care to start us off with a story from bits there? Um, so there's a photograph of a Michael Jackson collectible doll, and the opening line is, ever wanted to play with Michael Jackson? Put him in your pocket even, take him to bed. And you think, as an eight-year-old girl reading this, I wasn't his demographic, but it's just quite scandalously accurate, isn't it? Um, because Michael Jackson definitely wanted to play with you children, every single one of you. And he definitely put a few of you in his pocket and took you to bed. Innocently. <laughs> allegedly. Yeah. Uh, they're 12 inches tall, have a twisting waist, Bendable legs and movable arms oh. and are available in three different outfits. I mean, it's just, it's everything that you could uh, want a Michael Jackson doll to be <laughs> or everything that he'd want uh, a Michael Jackson doll to be. It's, I mean, what are the three different outfits? Is it like Messiah, performer, paedophile? Yeah, I think so. If you notice, like in his crotch area, it's a bit of a camel toe going yeah. on there as well. A, ma- a male wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> a medgie. Yeah, it's a bit unsightly, but he, he's kind of, he's, yeah, he's, he's flaunting his wares, isn't he, for the kids? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was so sexless, though, wasn't he, on the surface? Because I kind of um, I went through my Michael Jackson stage through the, the history of music from the Jacksons onwards because it was just part of childhood. And then I just binned him off for Prince because he literally was like a Michael Jackson doll. I want puberty hit you like, no, sorry, but you you'd just plastic doll you Mattel and then here he is Mattel full circle yes <laughs> and then there's um, 
another little feature or just a little piece just a few lines this one but if you imagine uh, Neil Tennant actually saying this in his soft slightly Geordie accent oh god a group of dancers called Dream Team, which includes Limal's sister Caroline, have reworked the old Supremes hit Floy Joy as a tribute to Boy George called, logically enough, Boy George. Let's all just draw a veil over it, shall we? <laughs> So tenant, <laughs> very tenant. Um, I tried to track down this single to have a listen on it. It's not uh, available on YouTube. It's not on Spotify either. There are three copies for sale on Discogs. Uh, one is in the UK, one is in Spain, and one is in Lithuania. So, you know, you got to pay your postage if you're going to get that one because that's the one that's in the best condition. Uh. Three quid. I'm just really shocked that Lamal's sister was called Caroline. I just like to think of them growing up with, you know, your brother Lamal and you're just sat there as Caroline thinking he's going to be a pop star and I'm going to have to do tributes to Boy George that Neil Tennant will scoff at in the pages of Smash Hits. Fate sealed. There's a thing about New Model Army and, you know, the New Model Army demographic doesn't normally dovetail particularly well with the Smash Hits demographic, you wouldn't have thought, but they're asking for someone to be the producer on the next single. And I just think that's, that's really... Like, if you're New Model Army, wouldn't you like put an advert yeah. in the Melding Maker or Sounds or Enemy or Trade Paper or ask people that are producers? No, we'll put, we'll put the uh, number of... Uh, I guess it's the manager, Nigel Norton, on 01833 and say, yeah, I could be the technical genius to produce New Model Army's next single. And uh, it says the lucky person chosen will win a free pair of genuine Yorkshire mill workers' clogs. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, I'm so surprised that you didn't, you know, get straight on the line for this gig. If you think you could be the technical genius to really harden up their drum sound without watering down their gritty, passionate vocals, give Nigel a ring. Oh, yeah. Wow. I know. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Something for everyone, I like to think, in the, this era of Smash It's. Yeah. The only bit of this issue that went on my wall is that uh, Ian McCulloch picture on page six, the lyrics to September song. Because I just loved his hair. <laughs> I really wanted hair like that. And I could never get it anything like that. My my hair just never would stay like that. I think you probably had to put a lot of gel on it to get it as uh, coiffured. No, do you know what it is? It's Liverpool water. That's it. John Lennon said this, nice soft water, and you get that nice bit of, bit of bounce on the old roots. That's what you needed. So you're in the Midlands, growing up in the Midlands, I could never get it like that. So, no. But yeah, that was on my wall. I loved that picture of him. It was gorgeous in that. Well, I'm glad that we know the little secret there to the Liverpool look. Never equated it to the water. Yeah. Uh, but it's the lyrics to um, September Song, as Gavin said. And this is what I, I think this is Mac gunning for the Christmas market as well. Because he's doing a cover of a 1930s standard. We've got Bronsky B doing uh, a 1930s song as well in the same issue. It ain't necessarily so by the Gershwins. And it kind of sets a, a little trend mm. of modern day artists doing olden day songs. Mm. So you get a couple of years later, um, Alison Moyer doing, I think she did Love Letters, didn't she? Uh, Rick Astley did uh, Nat King Cole's When I Fall in Love. And then, of course, towards the, the end of the decade, um, the Pet Shop Boys doing Always on My Mind. So it's a little bit of a, a Christmas theme there. So even even Mac is gunning for the Christmas market there. I'm, I'm sure of it. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move on from there. Get a couple of adverts. Uh, Bronsky Beat, like I've just mentioned. Next to that one, Alison Moyer, Invisible, uh, a song written by Lamont Dozier of Holland Dozier, Holland fame from uh, good old Motown days. And it's not a cover version. It's a song that I think was written 
I don't necessarily for her, but she was the first to record it. And as I mentioned previously, there's bells all over this one, there's stuff going off all over the place. And it's one of the songs that you'll find on our uh, video playlist. And we've had a, a little look at this video. Do you know, this video was so awkward that my social anxiety was hitting peaks watching Alison Moyer being completely ignored by everybody around her until I realised this is like the prototype to the sixth sense, this video. I literally think that nobody's told Alison that she's literally deceased. She doesn't get so much as a bit of eye contact. And then she's written a song about some really boring sounding bloke who treats her like she's invisible. You literally go full circle going, honey, if you are alive, please call a taxi. And... Everybody at this party, they are the most mismatched group of speed daters you have ever seen. She's like at a party with everybody's parents that no pop star would ever want to attend. There's rogue mustaches. There's fake food fights. There's predators on balconies. And she's just drifting through it like a ghost until you go, why are you even bothering to vocalise about this real boring guy I, I don't get it next <laughs> that party i mean it just looks like the worst party i've ever seen that time of year it, it looks like it might be a, a new year's eve party perhaps it's quite a sparsely decorated flat that she's in and when i watched it my mind was filling in the christmas decorations but yeah the people there just look like the absolute biggest tossers you've ever seen uh, in your life <laughs> doing doing <laughs> stupid party games with ladles and and stuff like that i don't know what they're doing passing the balloon between the legs are they going to play the hat game next what they're going to do i thought it looked like the the people in the video um they're not you know like most 80s videos Everyone in them is quite glamorous, but in this, they just look like they're um, teachers from the local secondary going on a bit of a jolly. And it doesn't make sense with the lyrics, because like you say, the lyrics are about her with some like knobhead bloke who's like ignoring her. And yet there's no bloke in the video particularly. There's just couples, aren't there? It looks like it should make sense, but when you really think about it, it makes no sense at all. What what annoyed me was the absolute disrespect that they had for the buffet. It's completely destroyed. I mean, they've, they've, they've <laughs> yeah. probably been, you know, one of those who, who, they'll finger all the food before they actually put some on the plate. <laughs> yeah, they'll kind of like, they'll open the sandwiches up and, <laughs> and then reject them. Yeah, mm. yeah. Grubby. And they'll um, they'll use the same spoon in different dips and things like that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Double dipping a breadstick. I would love to see you actually in this video, Simon, so you can patrol the buffet table <laughs> and make really judgmental eye contact <laughs> with all the attendees while Alison floats past. <laughs> well, well, I'm kind of like I'm kind of like the Alison Moyer figure because I'm not a drinker. Alison's not drinking at that until the end, and she's got she's got a glass in her hand. But through all the video, she's just wandering, drifting through the flat, and she's not drinking anything. She looks like she's having a thoroughly miserable time and that's that's like me at most parties and and i've actually written here if i was her i'd start tidying the mess and tell them to sod off home <laughs> this i've got it here 
the Paul Young Christmas package. This was mm. uh, a Christmas present from uh, one of my brothers. A double single with Everything Must Change, Give Me My Freedom, a live version of Dusty Springfield's I Close My Eyes and Count to Ten. And then you get an instrumental version of Everything Must Change with Paul's Christmas message on there. So that, that was uh, that was one of my... What is he, the Queen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all sat down at... Um, three o'clock. <laughs> three o'clock on Almost Christmas Day. Paul's Christmas message, Everything Must Change, everyone. All change. <laughs> yeah, the Paul Young thing. As soon as I heard you say Paul Young, I instantly go, ah, Paul Young, ah. Because... I could, his voice is amazing, but the mum factor just killed it for me. The fact that he always looked a little bit older and he looked really uncomfortable in eye makeup. And again, I think he was a victim of the 80s. But my mum was so into Paul Young that it just, oh, it was devastating. It absolutely revolted me for years. So I've only been able to listen to Paul Young without any bias the last kind of five years or so. And you go, what a great voice. Why didn't he make it really, really huge? And I think he looks so uncomfortable with that haircut and that makeup on him. Just let him sing and leave him alone. Ah. I got quite a lot of money thanks to him because uh, <laughs> a few years ago I was on Pointless and we got through to the final round of Pointless and the the question they asked me, mate, was um, who won the best British... So you had to like pick winners from the best British... Solo artists, you know, like the Brits Awards. Yeah, the male solo Brits. Yeah. Between like 79 and 2010 or something like that. I can't remember now. So we were trying to think of like the most obscure ones. Obviously, you want to get one that no one else has got out of the 100 people. So we went for Seal, uh, which was our first time. So that went down to two. And then I think we went for it was Nick Kershaw or Howard Jones. And that was a wrong answer. So we got nothing on that. And our final answer was Paul Young. And that was pointless, and that was the right answer. And it, so we got like uh, we split twelve hundred quid between us, thanks to Paul Young. So I wouldn't say I was a big fan, but I've, every time I hear it, you know, see a mention of him or hear a song by him, I'm always a little bit of my heart is just beats a little bit faster. Ah, oh, Paul Young, thanks, Paul. Unusually, uh, the singles reviews are on page 19. Normally they'd be towards the end of the mag, but here we are. Leslie White uh, reviewing the singles. She chooses Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Power of Love, as her single of the fortnight. And then she's just not very charitable about the rest of the stuff, is she? Awful woman. I've got major issues with Leslie White. I really have. (laughs) I mean, critics anyway, but she's just... The, the, the My favourite one is her write-up on Last Christmas, Wham's Last Christmas, which George Michael wrote when he was maximum 21 years of age. And she compares it to some kind of horrible romantic slop. No, you don't attack Wham like that with, for no reason. History has proven you wrong, Leslie. I hope you're listening. <laughs> There's no white Christmas happening on the single reviews whatsoever. Oh, nice line. Nice. Mic drop. I think that she was up against the deadline and that she didn't bother listening to the song she was looking through. Yeah, I know what that one's going to be like. I'll just write Mm. something about that. Case in point for me is the Stranglers song, a track called No Mercy. 
which I didn't really know before and I quite enjoyed listening to the song, but she gets it completely wrong, I think, with her little review here. So, 60s might have done well for The Doors 20 years ago, but frankly, I don't fancy its chances. Now, the mm. Stranglers were referred to as the Punk Doors when they first, well, not first on the scene, but when they first started putting out records in, in 77. But by this point, you were getting the Pop Stranglers and it is, it's a, it's a decent little pop song. It's um, nothing wrong with it at all. Like I say, it's, it's a bit of a toe tapper. So I don't think she she bothered listening to it. She just going and uh, lazy journalism. Yeah, she's just going along. Oh, this is yeah. Oh, punk punk doors. Right, I'll just write. You know, this sounds like doors. She's just tossing <laughs> these off. Mm. The one that sticks out for me is her review of um, Spandau Ballet's Round and Round. Another one that I got uh, from, from for Christmas from the same brother. Round and Round seven inch single limited edition gatefold sleeve with lots of. Uh, Pictures of the spans in various outfits and, and poses. There's uh, Tony Foghorn Hadley, his face poking out from a bunch of umbrellas. Don't know what that one's all about. Oh, there's a bit of a from here to eternity action going on here on a beach. Uh, overseas somewhere, possibly Singapore, something like that. All looking uh, very tanned, hunky and exotic. Shirts undone to the waist. And so she says... Having always admired the ballet, as we call them in Islington, for the sheer diversity of their outputs, it now seems like they've hit upon a foolproof formula. Well, they could do no worse. This is another song in the true mould, and it's slick, polished and confident. A hit, with me at least. And this seems to be the opinion on Spandau Ballet around this time, that the stuff that they did earlier on, to cut a long story short, and all the fun stuff that they did was kind of... Ugh, Juvenalia, it's you know, a load of rubbish. Uh, Gary Kemp's maturing into a, a really um, sophisticated songwriter. I think that's uh, exactly what um, Spano Ballet were going for. They're going for this sophistication sort of thing. But that's when all the fun just dropped out of their music. And like Paul Young, it's like, oh, that Tony Adley, he's a proper singer. Him. Oh, he can sing, can't he? Um, and there's a, a video for this on the video playlist of a TV performance. Not quite sure where it's from, probably Wogan or, or something like that. And I was looking at them thinking, what, what's wrong here? What's what's going on? And you you look at their clothes and... It looks to me like they're trying to be kind of like regal and royal. And they've been rolling around in the luxury fabric department of uh, Liberties <laughs> in, in London and just sort of, you know, like you, Patricia, with the net curtain, they're just going in there and getting, oh, I love, love a bit of that, you know, and just making it into ridiculous outfits that make them look like princes from the late 1800s from an Eastern European country or something like that. See, literally, as you're describing this now, the irony is that Duran got slated, I'm back on the Duran wagon. Yeah. Um, Duran got slated for being the kind of the Tory ridiculous hedonistic band but to me as a Durrani Spandau was so southern and that regality yeah. that arrogance of Hadley it just brings out the northern girl in me well it is it is arrogance that's what it is yeah and the majority of Duran Duran we had like three members from Birmingham one from Newcastle and it was only Simon Le Bonbon from London and he was quite fey and, <laughs> but Tony Hadley and Spandau just to me, as an eight-year-old girl, they just reeked of so much cheap aftershave. They screamed date rape, even though I didn't know what date rape was. I could just sense it, and I was absolutely repulsed by them. But they were kind of the um, the, the more kind of uh, palatable band, and Duran got labelled with exactly how I felt about Spandau's Southern Ballet. 
Yeah, well, I think uh, time has, has shown that Duran Duran were the better and more fun band. And also in Duran's seriousness, there was a ridiculousness to it as well. Whereas there's nothing ridiculous or, or, or fun about Spandau Ballet. No. Um, They've got no sense of humour at all, have they? No. I don't, don't know if it's the angle of the camera that's on Tony Hadley. I, I, I think he's quite a tall chap and the camera's quite low, low down. So all the way through the performance, he's just looking at you straight down, down his, his nose. Down his nose. That's oh. typical Hadley, that is. <laughs> yeah, but he's, he's quite busy with his hands all the way through the performance. He's, he's almost like he's uh, doing the weather forecast. <laughs> <laughs> pointing to you know there's, there's, a, there's a low coming in there and then you get the Hadley fist yeah and he's just drawing that fist down there's lots of pointing the thing is I think a lot of irony was actually lost at this moment and it wasn't until I watched um, some documentaries on Wham and George Michael after George Michael passed away and it was not until that moment that I realised how much him and Andrew were poking fun at what they'd become and the world that they'd gained entrance into with a lot of their videos because probably around this age when I was watching um, their videos in like, you know, 83 and, and, and Club Tropicana and all that kind of thing, I literally thought that that's how they saw themselves and I think that's exactly how Duran were a little bit misconstrued where they kind of got the joke with Rio and the boats and stuff. They were kind of poking fun being on a yacht in their silk suits posing they were kind of sending themselves up and at the same time going can you believe this is happening to us because we've never even been on a plane before and then there's Spandau getting under the radar again (laughs) say I've got grudges I really have (laughs) (laughs) we get to our uh, next uh, set of lyrics and it's fresh by Cool of the Gang so the video is amazing because it's like a futuristic version of the Cinderella story but there's all kinds of strange things in there, like there's, the ugly sisters are eating burgers wrapped with barbed wire. Instead of a fairy godmother is Marilyn Monroe with a hand grenade <laughs> that causes uh, the Cinderella character to stop scrubbing the space between chrome pyramids. I mean, I don't really know why, uh, why like she was Marilyn. doing that. I did like that. Yeah, that was, was a nice visual, it? it worked. <laughs> then she comes down the steps like in a ball gown and then that gets whipped off her and she's got basically a glittery leotard on that's... Showing all the bits off, really. Well, she's gone to the ball and, and Cool and the gang are the band because up until that time, they're, they're in what seemed like very separate locations and I did wonder for a few minutes if um, the whole Cinderella thing had been shot for another <laughs> video entirely and then it's like, you know, whoever, you know, the, the cars or Rod Stewart changed the mind and, uh, and he's like, oh, we'll give it to Cool and the gang. But it's, yeah, the song has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas but the video is like a disco panto. Yes, disco panto indeed. I've never seen the video before. And, yeah, when you think about Fresh and then there's this woman scrubbing a floor, I literally was thinking, has this been used in advertising at all? Because this is what I'm getting. I'm getting, this is like the new GIF of 1984. (laughs) And there's a bit of sex trafficking going on. I didn't get Cinderella at all at first. I was thinking, why is there a woman scrubbing floors while they sing Fresh? So I'm getting a bit of a kind of shake and vac going on. <laughs> and then the next thing, Cool and the gang are in their Christmas jammies, jumping around. And then she's in her cosy and she's just giving it loads to Cool, presumably, in her cosy. <laughs> and then he, he knocks up loads of transgender community people and abuses oh, yeah. them with his mates. 
And then he finally, he finally gets to the, the, the woman that was cleaning. He finally gets to her house and she's been de-Cinderella'd and looks a wreck. And he proposes marriage and whisks her off in some kind of egg. <laughs> you summed it up perfectly there, Patricia. That's it, yeah. Honestly, I, I just, I, I don't, part of me loves it though. Because <laughs> you put that to that groove and I'm in. <laughs> it's, it is magnificent. It, uh, it's the, like a real great 80s video, just silly and ridiculous and makes fuck all sense. But yeah. it's just, you it's, can't stop watching brilliant. it when it's on. I've watched it about 10 times in the last two days. I'm addicted to it. <laughs> I can't stop watching it. I really can't. Yeah, I, and I see little things, different times. Uh, every time I watch it, I see something different. It's great. It's because it's fresh and it's exciting. <laughs> and that's exactly what it yeah. says. And yeah, it, it absolutely delivers what you expect from that song with a Christmas Cinderella pantomime theme. Cinders doesn't get much time at the ball, though, does she? There's, there's lots of setup. Mm. And there's lots of going around with the silver stiletto looking for the uh, person with the right size foot to fit in there. But her time at the ball is very, very limited. And that's probably why that's probably why she's doing those crazy frantic moves down the front. See, well. this is where you, you're thinking too much Cinderella because if you look at the sex trafficked vibe, what actually happened is when she turns up and she strips off to her cosy, I mean, considering, you know, Cinderella is an innocent and this woman has got moves that you don't learn coming from, you know, an orphanage, hopefully, unless you really have to. So she's got the moves. And then what she does is she kind of, you know, she honey traps him. She shows him the moves. She disappears off and he goes chasing after her and proposes to her when she's, uh, you know, back at the flat watching Big Brother or whatever with her makeup off. Trafficked. <laughs> like it when the, you know you were talking about Patricia going around the houses with the looking for the owner of the shoe. There's some great acting going on there, isn't there, by the boys in the band? Oh yeah, Real and panto that acting. silver stiletto is just outrageous. Yeah, that is you know the silver stiletto just tells you all you need to know about what you're dealing with. Cool has <laughs> paid for the services of this woman. I mean, a stiletto is like a cry for help anyway on most women. And if you make that stiletto silver, then come on, we know what that means. And it doesn't mean Cinderella time, does it? It doesn't say pantomime. There's no pantomime going on with a silver stiletto. It's no. hardcore. It's all pants, no panto. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like cool and the gangbang. That should be in brackets. Because, you know, at age eight, I mightn't have picked up on that, but now it's 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 very disturbing, but it's very telling. You see, I thought it was much more innocent than that, but now I've read it through uh, your eyes. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. yeah no yeah. innocent woman dances like that for 30 seconds no, and then jumps true. a cab. That is come true. on, come on. We're getting to the main feature, probably the magazine, even though it's, they're not the cover stars. It's the account of the session for the Band-Aid single and they sent Peter Martin a really good account of the day and it, it's a story that we know, I'm sure all of us know well. We all know the song uh, very, very well. And I think that's been one of the difficult things with a lot of these songs that are in this magazine is just trying to get over your over-familiarity with them 
and reading this article has helped me to do that because he really he really puts you in the action like a fly on the wall but it doesn't go into like full-on detail it's sort of like sketching out just what's happening so you can fill in the rest of the detail for yourself so you've got the photo there, the classic photo, I think we can call it now, of the assembled pop stars with uh, George Michael with uh, David Bowie's shirt on, <laughs> right in the uh, pretty much in the middle there. And Peter uh, Martin's writing about all the acts that are coming to the, the studios in London. And he says, now it appears the floodgates are open. For the next two hours, a constant stream of the world's most famous pop stars pour into the building, ready to be filmed, photographed and recorded. Sting's just arrived in his jet black Range Rover. He looks very much the family man these days with his comfy casual clothes and straggly centre-parted hair. Paul Wellis turned up on foot and spends most of the time in the corner, minding his own business. I'm hardly everybody's favourite person. They just seem to ignore me. I don't blame them. Next in, a Spandau Ballet. Up they roll in two chauffeur-driven limousines with no less than four minders. Ugh, typical. Next in are Duran Duran who, like Spandau, have just got off the 6.30am plane from Dortmund, Germany. Nick is fully made up and sporting ski goggles, while, quite frankly, John looks a bit of a wreck. And I don't know what he's insinuating with that. Actually, I'm on another planet. Suddenly, the place is chock-a-block. You can't move for pop stars. You can't even go into the toilet without bumping into someone like Simon Le Bon. Uh, so it gives you a real flavour of the comings and goings throughout the day of the making of the Band-Aid single. I thought this was written so well because you literally were in the room with everybody there. In the four pages, he captures everybody, that great big spaghetti bowl of personalities and egos and all of that musical genre into one mix. And he puts you right at the centre of it, which is probably lost on me at that age, but rereading it. I was like, that's that's not an easy assignment. And you kind of get a flavour of him being in a similar situation to everybody else there where time is, you know, you've got a limited amount of time and you've got to get in there and get the best out of everybody and record it. And he just absolutely captures everybody. It was really nice to read it again. I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of uh, lot of booze going on in the studio as well, isn't there? There's cans of lager they talk about, and uh, Francis Ross even manages a slug from his hip flask in between each click of the shutter. And that's something that you know, like on the in the official kind of um, video. Was that in the video? You know, I don't. Does he take yeah. a little? Maybe, yeah. But I bet they were all either pissed or drugged. There's something in the video. Up, you know. Yeah, there's a little cheeky wink from Francis Rossi uh, at one point towards the camera but it does uh, mention that after having the, uh, the the photos taken that they all disperse into little groups the naughty ones like status quo and john and andy taylor sneak around the toilets for a smoke yes. paul weller marilyn and banana armor plonk themselves in front of the telly with the sound off <laughs> spandau and heaven 17 go for a cup of tea nick rhodes has a go on the asteroids machine and people like Paul Young, Bono and George Michael keep shooting upstairs to do their solo bits. But the one that they're waiting for all day is Boy George. Boy George and John Moss have come back on Concord just to do the session. John Moss is there pretty much all day waiting like a little puppy <laughs> for Boy George to turn up. And uh, and Boy George, nowhere to be seen. Finally, um, Swan's in. 
at the end of the day and just kind of uh, does his bit. So I, 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 I feel so sorry for John Moss that he's you know, just waiting, like I said, like, like, like this little puppy, just waiting for his friend to turn up mm. and talking to Phil Collins. And you, know, you see clips of him in, in the video doing his bits of percussion and things mm. like that. And you think, yeah, they were probably mixed <laughs> out, weren't they, really? They didn't put those on the final record. <laughs> yeah, so here's the bit where Boy George arrives. Then who should walk in but Boy George? Strangely for him, he looks quite phased and waves his arm in the air, shrieking, my God, it's so trippy seeing all these faces in one tiny room. He sits on the arm of the couch next to John Moss, who's chatting to Simon Le Bon. What I loved about that, though, not only does Georgie turn up late, because, I mean, he does look great. He's got a bit of a new look going on and breaks the fourth wall perfectly in this article. He turns up late and literally says what we're all thinking. And has this moment of absolutely turning to the audience going, can you believe this is going on? No wonder he wanted to take an hour or so to get himself together. Now, I went out and bought the Band-Aid single. I queued up at the uh, Greens record bar in Debenhams in Sheffield to get my copy. They'd sold so many by then that um, they're having to put them out just in plain sleeves. So I, I ended up having to make my own sleeve for the, for the Band-Aid single with that photo of them all uh, assembled uh, in the middle. I made my own gatefold sleeve and I wrote out all the people who were in the photo. Did you like the record? Did you like it at the time? I did. I loved it. It almost felt like... You didn't have to like it. You had to buy it. You felt like you were obliged to buy it. Even, you know, I was 11 years old mm. and I kind of got swept up in, in, in all this thing, reading about it in Smash It's I wanted this record as well. I wanted to do my bit. You know, within a couple of years, I was doing sponsored walks at school and donating the money to Amnesty International and things like that. So it kind of really uh, raised uh, my awareness of global events and, and things and yeah i adopted that that seriousness that my favorite pop stars were adopting i didn't really like it that much but i think i think if adamant had done a lot it i might have enjoyed it you know <laughs> there was no ant in it so uh yeah and you know morrissey wasn't on it so i wasn't that asked it does still feel like quite a, a monumental event and, and a, a massive achievement of the kind of thing that we hadn't really seen before. And we've seen lots of attempts to do it since, but have never had the same same effect, same impact, same feeling about it. There was just something about this one event that you know that eventually came, became Live Aid. It was just different to to everything else. That probably explains why you know, I'm still a little bit obsessed by these things all these years later. Well, actually, I've got a question for you, Simon. Yeah. So Band-Aid 2. Yeah. Why, in my opinion, was that so flaccid compared to the first and the original? Because I think that's one of the most dreadful Christmas songs ever. And the fact that it's, as a cover, it pales into insignificance next to the um, the original. But when you look at you know that there's no, you know there's some talented people on the record. Why is that so awful? Uh, that's the one that Stock Aitken and Waterman did, isn't it? I think. Mm, you've just answered the question, haven't you? <laughs> So we get on now to our cover stars. Um, two pages on uh, Strawberry Switchblade. Again, with Peter Martin in control of the pen on this one, we get the lyrics to Since Yesterday and then uh, a little, um, just a few questions to Jill and Rose from uh, Strawberry Switchblade. But first of all, the song, uh, Since Yesterday, how do we feel about that one? It's definitely a song that I always remember from that period. 
And do you know what? I, I've always thought, I wonder without them, without that image, whether I'd remember it because there's something quite strange about it. There's something quite um, unusual about them and the music. And I don't know whether where they kind of came from in terms of, you know, whether they had a, a huge amount of management behind them or whatever. But it was a very unusual single that really stood out from the rest of the charts at the time. It's a song that is concerned about nuclear war, if you weren't aware. Oh. Another big theme of uh, 1984 with um, two tribes. Yeah. And Threads as well, the, uh, the BBC TV drama. But enough about nuclear war, let's get back to uh, Strawberry Switchblade and, and cheer <laughs> things up a bit. Um, so it begins, there's two of them. They've been called a cross between Danny LaRue and Rapunzel. <laughs> They've called themselves the Scabby Witches from Scotland. People think they look like Boy George's sisters. They produce good wee songs, one of which is never off the radio. Yeah, there's a bit where... Um, have you started getting recognised yet, Jill? Yes, in Oxford Street in London, but Rose never notices because she's always looking for money in the street. There's always these voices going, it is, it is, it's Boy George's sister. And Rose says, and I'm going, oh, look, there's a halfpence. <laughs> Jill uh, says, why do you always ask such nice questions? <laughs> ask us a nasty question. Which leads into, uh, okay, why are you so ugly? Which is, um, I, I don't know if that's something that they'd been making a thing out of or not, because Jill does refer to herself as looking like porridge in the morning before she puts the makeup on. I thought it, it seemed kind of mean, you know. I mean, I know Smash Hits were famous for asking strange questions or, you know, questions that might lead to an entertaining answer, but I don't know, tonally, it just kind of like, oh, you know, I felt a bit disappointed on their behalf. I mean, they they take it well and they, they go along with it, but I didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I'm wondering if it was a bit bit of a thing that they referred to themselves as ugly, and so that's why it was okay for him to ask that question. I think that is a bit of a uh, smash hits because smash hits always had that little element of snidiness to itself. And I think probably because I was so young reading it, I kind of saw it as the patronising cool teenager. So I was quite happy to be patronised occasionally. But when you read it now, I think it, it it was probably trying to be a bit ironic and a bit cool. Like when you used to get the kind of sticker collections and stuff and the humour was kind of at that sort of level. But yeah, sometimes it, it just was a little bit too snobbish in its own coolness, wasn't it? It kind of flipped over. In a very unpleasant manner. But yeah, I don't... Um, mm. I thought it was... It, it kind of uh, hit a sour note, didn't it? That interview with that question. Although she does say, ask us a mean question and being smash hits, they're going to go, okay, why are you so ugly? Because it's a bit of a knee-jerk question, isn't it? I don't think he should have written it up. I think it would have... I think um, I think it was a bad choice because it's out of context and maybe that exchange should have just stayed between them because when you read it now, it really doesn't work. Yeah. Jill answers, she says, uh, I mean, you can't help it if you're born ugly, right? And we don't help it by putting on so much dreadful makeup and doing our hair like scabby witches. That'd be a brilliant headline, scabby witches from Scotland. Like me and Rose used to have this fantasy where we'd go up to a cave in Scotland and get rid of all our clothes and make outfits out of leaves and twigs and live in a cave and go and steal turnips from people's gardens to eat and we'd try and survive for a week. That was just a few years ago. We were really serious about it. Um... <laughs> 
So I think I don't know if that's that's an attempt to deflect the question or or not because you know I, I look at this this photo of, of Strawberry Switchblade and they look utterly glorious to me. They're just fantastic. Mm. I, I would have never even thought of calling them ugly. I think that is just part of the um, responsibility of being a goth at the time, though, isn't it? Because I'm sure when they went onto the local high street, I'm sure they probably got a ton of abuse, which is part and parcel of being a goth. So they probably learned to send themselves up quite early on yeah, as being the um, the outsiders and looking very different. Yeah. And you either got it or you didn't. Well, they did start out as punks, you know. They were part of the, the original um, punk wave back in the back in the seventies. A couple of lassies from Glasgow, and you know they're not going to take any shit anyway, are they? So I, I think there's something quite defiant in the way that that they dress and the, and the way that they make themselves look. And like I say, I just think it's utterly wonderful. Yeah, I think they were great. I think it's a shame they didn't last longer really and that they they were i know they had a few other singles but i don't think anything else was a, a, as big a hit as this and it's a shame i think the pop world of the 80s would have been all the richer for a longer period a, you know they'd have had a longer ride on the giddy carousel then i think would have all been richer for that do we know what they're doing now they had a big falling out uh, probably a couple of years after this. So uh, Strawberry Switchblade came to an end. They're both still active. I think um, Rose McDowell's still out there making music. I'm not sure about Jill Bryson. I think she was she was quite poorly for a time about 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but they're both both still around. You know, they probably be about you know 60 years old now. But um, yeah, Rose is still out there making music. There's a few videos on YouTube if you want to check it out. She still looks fantastic. Yeah. Jill, Jill's still doing music as well. Um, had a quick look, and there's a website with some albums on there and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. There's one little quote here and asking, what kind of music do you play? It's like, ah, they're good wee songs, nice easy ones you can sing along to. Um, but then Jill says a bit later on, hearing a song can be really emotional and like things like drawing. They can move you to tears, and that's what I hope our music can do. This is one of those songs that can, if it catches me, um, unawares, this song can reduce me to tears, <laughs> and it's it's the bit uh, you know. And as we sit here alone, looking for a reason to go on, it's just the way that the music changes on there, uh, the, the way that the vocals seem just that little bit out of tune, and it just feels helpless in a way. And it, it yeah, it's, it's quite often just just get, gets me right there. Mm. That song. When I hear it, I get very nostalgic for that it really reminds me of that period actually because it was played so much on the radio um it, it just takes me back to december 1984 when i hear it you know yeah it's a real sort of pavlovian kind of response you know it's it's but yeah it still it still sounds great it's a lovely single really is i mean i, I bought it many years later this single but it just seems like it's buried deep within me uh, and it's just one of those songs that will always be with me oh Move on to the letters page now, uh, dear Black Type. Black Type. Now, quite a few of the letters are referring to things that have appeared in the previous issue, and uh, Midyear seems to have drawn quite a, a reaction <laughs> from people. Um, Midyear, I won't say dear. You've got a nerve. I agree with you about Wham and Duran, even Sade. But when you call Morrissey a prat, you obviously don't know what you are talking about. History has proved uh, Midyear correct uh, in this instance. <laughs> dear Midyear, you arrogant, conceited sod. 
uh, begins another letter. Dear Mid, and then somebody says, Dear Midshire, at least somebody who is not tone deaf, somebody with taste, somebody with culture, who's a sex bomb at 31, has spoken out against the mighty ha ha wham and Duran Duran, two devoted Ultravox fans. So I had to go and look at what all the, the, the fuss was about. And th- there is, in the previous edition of uh, the, the Smash It's 8th to the 21st of November, there's a, a feature with Midyear looking all arrogant down the lens of the camera, and he's absolutely slagging people off like you wouldn't believe. Um, little did he know, I think, at this time, that just a couple of weeks later, he would be having to record most of the people that he was slagging off for the Live Aid singles. So imagine that was... Talks. The, Little bit orcs, yeah. Uh, what do you think of Duran Duran? Their new single's pathetic. I cannot believe they put it out with his vocals on like that. His vocal is terrible. It's awful. I don't see the point of that record at all. Was this an investigation or an interview? <laughs> it seems like he's been set up. Well, he's it's, it's, it's a little bit... I mean, it's a little bit of a prickly character anyway from what I could work out, um, <laughs> Midjour. Uh, Morris is not a real person. He's a facade like Des O'Connor laughing at everybody's terrible jokes. Ooh. It's a bit of a bizarre observation, isn't it? Yeah, and so he's just like, yeah, just absolutely laying into people. Uh, I mean, I read a thing the other day about Wham being 21-year-olds. That's a farce. I can't believe that. I've seen those guys and they look more debauched than I do. I don't see the point in lying about your age. If Joan Collins can be a sex bomb at 50, so can I. Joan Collins is probably how Boy George will look in 20 years' time. Was he drunk? I don't know what he was. Major. Have you been drinking? <laughs> that should be the headline. He even has a go at David Bowie. What does he say about Bowie? Um, who do you admire? A while back I thought David Bowie was quite smart, but really he's just a very good thief and a stylish fraud. I still admire his stamina, but he seems to be a bit money-orientated, like, let's do a world tour, chaps, and cash it all in. So he's just, yeah, ab- absolutely on one. Yeah. He's a bit bitter, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, I think he, I think he has. Don't, don't know what he's bitter about, but he's certainly bitter about something. But like I say, I hope people had a, a little bit of a word with him when they're in the uh, studio recording uh, Do They Know It's Christmas a couple of weeks later. Well, the irony is in a month's time when you're trying to book him for the podcast, you're absolutely screwed. Yeah, he means nothing to me. <laughs> now we get to a, a two-page feature on Bananarama. Um, the photos of the girls just looking a bit bored and disinterested at the bottom. Um, you might be feeling like death with a massive hangover and all someone wants to do is take your picture. Um, so a bit like Boy George uh, at the beginning of the mag, they're just having a little bit of a moan on this one. They're, they're not being particularly um, chirpy or, or positive about anything. Uh, apart from Siobhan, who seems just a, a little bit bonkers, it says uh, at the moment she's trying to draw in the horns and go on the wagon lay off the demon drink in other words but she's finding it a bit of a problem unfortunately when i do step out i can't see the point in staying sober also i drink lager and blackcurrant and much to my disgust i realized when you're sick on the carpet blackcurrant won't come out i really enjoyed this interview because i remember them all being a little bit prickly and obviously i'm junior school age but when I reread it, I actually I found it quite refreshing that they were just sort of like lazy students who happened to be pop stars because they literally came across as if they were at university and they're discovering alcohol and they all live next door to each other. So I found it quite 
I found it quite a cute interview where they're all going around to have cups of tea and then going to the pub of a night. It was very relatable and unpretentious. Yeah, and supposed to be going to the gym but can't be bothered. Yeah. I always remembered them as being a bit more pretentious, but actually I think they just were um, were genuinely uh, a bit probably surprised and nonplussed by everything. I think they were just drying out, weren't they? At this point, it was like, let's lay off the ale for this Christmas. <laughs> and the concept of that was so depressing, they just lost the will. So I reckon by the time the journalist left, whoever interviewed them, they probably just got the wine out and cheered up. Uh, it's the one and only Peter Martin again. Wow, he's busy in this issue. He is, yeah, yeah, he's getting all the good stuff. Yeah, it's quite charming, really. They just seem to like cups of tea and toast and watching Bullseye. It's a nice image, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I, I think it's really sort of unpretentious and... Uh... I actually feel like we're inviting them round. And then we get to, well, the, the song that really uh, should have been Christmas number one had Pesky Band-Aid not got in the way. It's Wham! Last Christmas, a song that was actually recorded in the August of 1984 in a studio just off Oxford Circus. And apparently George Michael plays all the instruments himself on it. Uh, unsurprisingly, Andrew Ridgely makes no input whatsoever. And, and this is a song that we're probably all over familiar with it now possibly maybe even lost some of its charm and, and sparkle a little bit. But when I was reading about the making of it and that George Michael just kind of like set to and did everything himself, I, I thought that was, that was quite a nice image. And, you know, so now I've kind of listened to it anew uh, and appreciate it in, in a different way. Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't know anything to do with the facts with uh, Wham stuff. I did with George Michael later on. I had all of his stuff. But the, um, so last Christmas, I'd never really paid that much attention to. And then when I found out how young he was um, and that he basically put all of that together, that's when I kind of um, really thought, God, this, this talent of his didn't exactly develop late on in life. He was just incredibly talented, so young. Yeah, it was there right from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he just, you know, the only thing he didn't have was confidence at that point. And I can completely see the logic in wanting your very confident friend, Andrew, who's got absolute swag to join you for the ride and lighten things up. And that image of them <laughs> um, on the last Christmas single, it just sums wham up with Andrew dressed as Rudolph. And George kind of laughing at him. It's like, yeah, he was just, but he was just so up for it. So I never... Um, I never really thought he deserved the slating that he got because I really don't think we would have had George Michael without him at all. And probably the same with Pepsi and Shirley as well. He's like the shy, lovely, gifted child, wasn't he? Just needed uh, his friends to go, go on, George, you can do it. So we're nearing the end of the magazine now. We've got a little report about um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood in America. Um and the, the lyrics to uh, The Power of Love, which did make it to number one, uh, completing uh, Frankie's hat trick of uh, 1984. I was well into Frankie Coast to Hollywood uh, back in 84. I bought Relax, didn't know what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> bought it from the uh, from the singles bar in Esther. <laughs> when you said singles bar, I automatically placed you in some really seedy nightclub. I just bought it in a singles bar dressed head to toe in leather. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd probably, my mum was quite keen on buying me brown clothes back then, so I was probably dressed head to toe in brown, <laughs> looking like a bit of a turd or something. <laughs> <laughs> Looking like a bit of a brownie. Yeah. Um, a confused in, brownie. Well, I've got a fun fact 
about Frankie. So Mark O'Toole's mum actually worked in Sayers and I used to go in there with my nan and she used to tell us about how this um, Mark was in this band and they were gonna they were destined for big things she thought and she was sick of the noise of them in the bedroom and then when Relax came out she was still there in Sayers saying she was absolutely mortified. <laughs> she could, she could never serve anybody a sausage roll the same again. Yeah, she was most put out. She was like, oh, what a bother. It's, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I don't know whether it's just ingrained, though, but um, because we only really hear it at this time of year. But to me, that song just sounds like winter. Yeah. And it literally is like this amazing heat that appears in the middle of winter. Every time I hear it at this time of the year, I'm always shocked by how good it is. But yeah, great song. I, I loved Frankie as well. I, I had all the singles and I had the album. And, you know, this is so unlike Relax and Two Tribes. And again, it's it sounds good now still. And that thing about in a winter song, I still associate it with winter very much so. I think because I listened to it so much when it came out at this time of year. But it does give you that nice little warm glow inside. There's something really comforting and kind of magical about it. It's like operatic, isn't it? It reminds me of like, you can imagine it being performed in the middle of an opera, that song. And then he goes and mentions the hooded claw and vampires. And I'm, it's just, you can't top that, can you? It's just, do you know what? Holly Johnson, what a dude. <laughs> Well, I think uh, that that just leaves uh, me to say thank you, Gavin. You're very, very welcome indeed. Uh, thank you, Patricia. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the Giddy Carousel of Pop. I have absolutely loved the entire whirlwind. It's It's been uh, enlightening for us too, I think. <laughs> 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 and uh, thanks to you out there for listening. You'll find all those links to the edition of Smash Hits that we've been looking at, along with the Spotify and YouTube playlists on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog. And uh, we'll also post them on the usual social media channels. Uh, that's at giddypoppod on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and uh, we're on Instagram as well. So come and say hello. It'll be nice to hear from you. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Look, we're having difficulty saying this message. What we'd like to say is, myself and my mate Paul... This is Ian talking. Uh, this is Paul talking there. And this is, is uh, Ian just talking there. No, that's me. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. And a Happy New Year. For 1985. Thanks a lot. See you. Thumbs up. Can't see that. That's it. That's it. Put that on backwards. Hold on. Hold on. That's it. Go on. Hello.